Well, welcome everyone uh, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined today by my special guest, Mr. Peter Fascia, CPA, Esquire, LLM. He's just showing off with all that stuff, folks. And John Tiska, CPA, with Matson, Driscoll, and Damico in Philadelphia. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello. Thanks for having us, Mike. Hey, Mike. How are you? My pleasure. Thanks. Good, good. So as you know, everyone, uh, Surety Today is offered only to in-house claims professionals and uh, is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. And we appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues uh, who you think may be interested in calling in. We also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter we really uh, are looking to build up a following on the social media platforms if we can. If you miss the presentation, and I cannot understand how you could possibly miss the presentation, right? It's, it's simply a matter of prioritization. Surety today first, everything else after that. And, but, you know, if you can't make a presentation, you're in luck because you can listen to uh, any of the prior presentations uh, at a, as a recording at the uh, Surety Today page on our website, wcslaw.com as a podcast on iTunes or Google Play or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today and on our microsite, suretytoday.net. If you have any um, suggestions for future topics or improvements, uh, please let us know and we'll hope to get to that soon. Uh, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. And today we'll also be taking questions during the presentation by email. So. If you've got a question that uh, that Peter John can answer, email me at mstover at wcslaw.com, and then we'll try to get it answered during the presentation or at the end. So today we're going to talk about, so what is a books and records investigation, going beyond the numbers? We've all had that situation where, for one reason or another, the surety starts to get concerned about a principal and wants to get a look at the financial health of the business, so the surety calls Peter and John and says, hey, go do the books and records, they go off, they do their black magic accounting stuff, and they come back with a report. But what do they do? How do they do it? What, what are the issues and the pitfalls in, in doing these um, investigations? So Peter and John are here today to pull back the curtain and show us how the magic is done and, and talk with us about, you know, the most, this is, you know, most routine of activities, but there's really a lot going on behind the scenes. But first, let me say a little bit about our guests. Uh, Peter is a CPA, of course, and he's also an attorney in Philadelphia and New Jersey. He's been a forensic accountant for more than 20 years. Over the course of his career, he's handled all aspects of bond loss matters, including uh, initial financial evaluations, assisting in, in setting loss reserves, ongoing management of losses, analyzing fidelity claims, maintaining escrow accounts, preparing internal published reports, and, and, and so on. Uh, and he's also, he's also been extensively involved in litigation support as an expert witness and has testified in state and federal courts. John's a CPA, and he specializes in surety and fidelity claims, uh, lost profits, and funds control. He has extensive experience in litigation support, damage calculations, claim resolutions, subcontractor ratification, funds tracing analysis, etc. And John is, uh, is a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh. So, of course, there are many purposes for having a books and record uh, investigation performed. It could be helping to set a reserve, for projecting cash to be received and dispersed uh, through the completion of the job, determining the contractor's financial ability to continue performing, 
determining the most cost-effective way for the surety to complete the bonded projects, you know, takeover or tender or buyout, determining the reason why the contractor is in its current position, and looking to see if the principal has been misusing any of the bonded contract funds. But whatever the reason, today we're going to look at the mechanics of the process. So before we get into the details, uh, uh, Pete and John, tell us what accounting standards apply to the books and records investigation. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for the intro. And, and before we get started, I just wanted to highlight that um, this discussion today is just how Madsen Driscoll D'Amico approaches a uh, books and records that may not reflect how somebody else would, would uh, go about a books and records. Um, as far as accounting standards go, uh, we do look for the contractor to adhere to generally accepted accounting principles, uh, as many people refer to them as, as GAAP. However, our investigation is not really a, a, a generally accepted accounting um, a process where we're doing an audit, a review, or a compilation, uh, terms that you've probably heard in the past out there in, in the uh, accounting uh, sector. So in that regard, we don't have uh, an audit plan when we go in. We don't uh, randomly test transactions through the end of an examination period. We don't generally perform analytical review uh, procedures, comparing one period's activity to another period. We don't send out audit confirmations to third parties, letters saying, please verify your account balance is true and accurate as of this cutoff date. <clears throat> um, and we don't play with the contractor's accounting information to reorganize it in a format that would be recognizable by outside users, a uh, balance sheet or income statement. Uh, we don't prepare footnotes uh, to the books and, and records investigation typically, and uh, we don't have our issuance of our report is really not expected to go beyond the surety's uh, use and its team, as opposed to financial statements which are relied upon by banks and other third parties to typically um, rely upon um, giving credit to a contractor. And finally, we don't issue um, any type of audit opinion. So with that being said, our books and records investigation is, in, at least in my mind, significantly different than an audit and uh, its approach is much different than that of an audit, a review, or a compilation. Okay, so, so but the traditional professional standard of care for an accountant to its client applies, and basically you're looking for a snapshot of, of, of what's going on with this entity at the time you're doing the review. That's correct. Uh, I would tell you that if you were uh, going to college today as an accounting student and you were learning about audits, reviews, and compilations, None of that really applies to the context of a books and records investigation that we perform on behalf of a surety. Uh, it's a totally different concept, and we, we use different, uh, a different approach than generally accepted accounting principles in connection with doing an audit review or a compilation. Okay, all right. So, so now before the books and records investigation can, can even get started, there are some preliminary issues that, that have to be considered. So, so tell us about you know, what those issues are. Sure. Uh, I, before we get started with the investigation, we like to develop some line of communication, whether we're introduced by the surety or we reach out to the principal directly. We want to get some flow of conversation to help figure out what can make it more efficient and effective for both parties. Um, so one of the things we look at during this, are we going to be accessing the documents remotely via electronic transfers and emails? or Will this require a visit at the principal's office where we sit down with them? 
Um, we want to make sure we know which personnel will be available for our, our assistance. Um, we want to know what format the documents may be provided. Will they be in a hard copy, PDF, or some native file? Uh, and what, what type of accounting system are they using? Uh, we can figure out and begin to put together a document request list based upon the accounting system that maybe we've experienced other reports that are specific to this accounting system where we can ask for a detailed request. Um, we also you know, want to take a look at the bond line card, make sure that we're looking at the payment and performance bonds, um, and, and we take a look at all the projects. We want to make sure that even though a contractor may say that the projects are complete, we want to still verify that to make sure that there aren't any outstanding receivables or payables on certain bonds, although the contractor or principal says that they, uh, the, the jobs are closed. Right. Mike, one of the it's really – uh, go ahead, Pete. Yeah, well, one of the things I would add to that comment would be uh, at the outset, depending on how we get information uh, transferred to us, uh, remotely, in some cases with, with smaller books and records, we don't ever step foot in the contractor's office, uh, which is not a shock in today's uh, age of, of emails and, and PDFs, uh, versus us going to a contractor's office. That, that could also impact, uh, right from the outset, the cost of the books and records, which is always a question up front from our clients, how much is this going to cost? Uh, if we're going to have to go out, especially travel a distance, it's, it's probably going to cost a little bit more than if we can go back and forth through uh, emails and, and PDFs. Right. And what these, you know, whatever, what I think the surety companies need to keep in mind is that, you know, these issues are all, are all, these fundamental issues are all different for every contractor, for every situation almost. And, and so every time uh, you approach it, you've got, you got some variation or some variables that are different, and so the thoroughness of the inspection or the cost is going to vary, you know, from principle to principle, really. So, so with every investigation, the accountant will generally need to look at, you know, the income, the cash coming in, and then the cost to complete, the expenses, and, and then future liabilities. So on the income side, let's first focus on the remaining contract balance. Pete and John, what are we looking at? with respect to the remaining contract balance in the uh, books and records review? Yeah, so th this, is, uh, this is the beginning point for our books and records. And what we're trying to determine with our analysis is how much cash at a certain point in time, the cutoff date, is going to be uh, collected going forward. So this is strictly a, a cash-in, cash-out analysis with the books and records for a surety. And very simply, that the concept is I need a dollar in my bank account to pay a dollar going out the door. That's simple. But how do we arrive at that number can be quite challenging in, in many cases. So to start off with, when we're looking at how much money is left from the cutoff date going forward in, in time to the end of time, we have to first consider what type of contracts are we looking at? Are they fixed priced? And can we verify that they've been executed and signed? Are they unit priced? If they're unit priced, What's the basis for billing? Well, what is the unit that we're billing? Is it, is it feet, miles? Is it uh, certain pillars that need to be put up? Um, is it a cost plus type contract? Or is it a time and materials contract? In some cases, with larger books and records, there's variations on all different types of contracts. So we need to be cognizant up front what's the standard that we're using to evaluate each contract, each bonded contract. Beyond that, of course, in many cases, it's not uncommon that once we've executed, the principal's executed a contract, 
the contract is going to change. There's change orders. And, and we often hear about change orders from our principal when we walk in the door. Well, we've done this, we've done that, and we're going to get, we're going to get a change order for this down the road. It's going to be X amount of dollars. Well, well from the, an accounting perspective, the conservative nature of accounting, we can't accept that. that. That may be a potential change order. We acknowledge it, and we may note it somewhere in our report, but we're not going to book it. Uh, so to speak, unless we have a signed change order that acknowledges that that has been approved and will be paid at some point in time. So uh, along those lines, we'll look for signed change orders. Um, do the change orders appear on the pay app in, in, in the total calculation? Um, and then uh, <coughs> is, is there any uh, pending change orders or are there any, any types of claims that might be out there that we need to consider in that, that respect? That all leads up to what we would call um, a revised contract balance. And, and looking at the revised contract balance, we're trying to figure out what is the true value of the contract as of the cutoff date. And, and things like billing allowances may make for difficulty. These are lines included in the schedule values where the contractor may or may not receive money for the uh, actual work, depending on how the work goes down the road. So we've got to be careful about billing allowances. Once we've, res we've determined a revised contract amount, we're next going to look at payments that have been actually billed to date and what's been received to date. So how much of that remaining contract balance is available to collect after we, based on what we've billed and what we've collected to date? So at the end of the day, when we're looking at how much money is left to collect in the contract, I really think of three buckets at a very high level. One bucket is our accounts receivable. That's money that, that's dollars that we've billed to the owner and they haven't paid us yet. But we expect it sometime in the near future, 30, 60, 90 days. We've got amounts that we've billed, but we don't expect to receive in the short term, but we do expect to receive at the end of the job. Often refer to that as retainage. And then finally, the third bucket is items that we have not billed for to date, the unbilled balance left in the contract. So very simply, when you take the accounts receivable, the retainage bill to date, and the unbilled balance, that should give you your amount of cash that you're going to collect from the cutoff date going in forward in time to the end of time. And that's kind of the starting point of our analysis. How much money are we going to collect on a cash basis? Yeah, and and to add on to that point, when looking at the net billed and unpaid or the accounts receivable, it's often important to look at the aged accounts receivable. How long has it been since they've collected or since they billed the job or the project? Will they actually collect the funds on the job? Is there an issue collecting money on certain contracts? So it's, it's difficult to look, it's important to look at those factors when the determining the, the, the contract balance. Is it fully collectible? Keep, keep in mind that if, if we were doing an audit, we might very simply just send out an, a, a notice or a confirmation and say, owner, please confirm the amount of money that we're, you're going to pay us going forward or what's left in the contract. But we don't do that. We're not doing an audit. So we have to use, we have to accept uh, what's said to us at, at some value by the principal. Then we've got to try to corroborate it with documents. We want to use signed documents and we have to use our accounting know-how and, and, and knowledge and experience to kind of evaluate, is what's being said, does that make sense to us? Do we really, do we really have that money available or is that receivable collectible down the road?
Right. <laughs> okay. And, and I'm glad to hear you don't book these uh, pr these proposed change orders and claims because uh, usually they end up being somewhere close to zero uh, or even <laughs> less zero. <laughs> so so now now that we've got a handle on the income side with the contract balance, uh, walk us through the the cost to complete and the expense side. Uh, so. You know, typically with a contractor, they use a method called the percentage of completion cost method. Uh, this essentially is revenues and expenses for long-term contracts are recognized as a percentage of work completed during the period. In essence, the, the percentage of completion method allows the contractor to recognize the percentage of the total income that matches the percentage of the cost. That's different from the completed contract method where income is recognized only when the contract is completed or substantially completed. Um, so when we go through the review of the cost, we take a look at the total estimated cost, and usually that's provided by the contractor. Um, we take a look at this total estimated cost, and how does that compare to the contract value? Is it reasonable? Is there a profit margin that makes sense? And some of the factors we'll look at is the type of work, the location of work, the uh, level of competition for the same work impact or on what is reasonable. Uh, and then, then on, a, on a high level, we may say, is every project making money? So why are we in here? Why are we looking at the books and records if every job's profitable? Does that make sense? Um, some, some of the components we'll look at is the profit fade when you're looking at the total cost compared to the, uh, the total contract value. Were they expected to make X amount and three months down the road they're making significantly less on the contract? Um, then we asked out of the question, how are the costs derived for the total cost? Are you taking the initial, initial budget less the cost incurred? Uh, are you, is the contractor doing an actual takeoff as of a certain cutoff date? If so, how often are they revising their estimates for the cost to complete? Um, do the, does, does the contractor book costs associated with change orders? Have they accounted for those? Um, then we'll take some of the reports from the contractor to look at the job cost incurred. And we want to make sure that's clear and concise that the costs are only incurred through a specific cutoff date. And this reports usually it's given to us by the contractor, and once again, we'll compare the cost incurred with the billings to date. Does it make sense? Is the contract underbilled or overbilled? Um, and then we could, then some of the other things that we look at is just whether or not the, uh, there's some manipulation within the cost. Are the, could the contractor be moving costs from the future into the current period or maybe whipping the whip as we like to call it, which is could be a topic for another podcast, but um. So I, I think Micah, the one thing we should highlight here is that this section of determining what is the cost of the job and what would be the perspective cost of the job going forward is really a little bit outside of our realm. Um, it's not unusual when we do a books and records that we work together in a team concept. We work together with the surety, with the attorney, someone like yourself, as well as a construction consultant and us. That's typically the team put together. For this section, determining the job costs going forward, what they truly are going to be, um, if there is a construction consultant hired, we really we defer to them 
uh, with regards to uh, this analysis. Uh, that's not to say that we, uh, we have no input at all, but we, we will typically take a role where we're feeding cost information and other information to the construction consultant that will evaluate the realistic um, the viability of, of these cost to completes. Are they really accurate or are they just, are they just kind of fluff? And it's, it probably doesn't come to anyone's shop on the, on the call today. Many times the principal's uh, estimate of their cost to complete is a little bit less than what the construction consultant uh, typically determines on the back end. Yeah, so I get that 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 the contractor, the the consultant, has to has to weigh in on this issue. What about though on, on profitability? Is that do you all have uh, you know what what's what's reasonable profit in a construction business in a certain location? Do you you have those kind that kind of data or information you draw on to determine the reasonableness? Well, we certainly do look at that. I, I can remember uh, not not to bring in too many war stories, but I remember a, a contractor telling me years ago that uh, although he was several millions of dollars in the hole, he had just signed a, uh, a contract with uh, AT&T to put up what was called the 4G network back then. And it was in the neighborhood of $10 million plus, and he was going to make 40% on this type of a contract. And, and it just dawned on me saying, well, what's so special about that? It's not a special, it's being put up across the country. Why are you making 40% here? And, and we kind of delved into it for a while. It took us several days back and forth. And finally, what it turned out was the contractor had misinformation provided to him through his internal accounting department, which made him believe he was making upwards of 40% on, on this contract when, in fact, he wasn't. It just didn't make sense that it, uh, the type of work putting up a 4G network, which is not super unique or, or, or specialized, would, would justify a 40% profit margin. In fact, at the end of the day, it was inaccurate. Yeah. Okay, so, so let's look at some additional potential exposures that should be considered in a books and record investigation, guys. Uh, it's one of the things we, we definitely take a look at is, is the accounts payable. Uh, and we want to make sure there's, again, a cutoff date that we have all invoices accounted for through the cutoff date. Uh, it, we want to make sure if, if anything's missing that there's an accrual of payables for large subcontractors. Um, and then, are there any held checks? Has the contractor cut a check and instead of mailing it out, placed it in his drawers, thinking he'd mail it out in a few weeks or maybe it just sits there? If, if there's held checks, that relieves the payables. It lowers the liability from what we're looking at on the accounts payable run, check run, or accounts payable register, and it looks like there's less owed to the vendors. Um, we make sure that the accounts payable detail ties into the trial balance. Uh, we'll look at an account pay, accounts payable by project to quantify the payables on each job. Then we'll also look at an accounts payable by vendor to understand how much is due to a creditor in total amongst all projects. Uh, it's important when going through an accounts payable report to see whether or not it includes overhead. Oftentimes it does not account for overhead. Um, then is there a separate accounts payable report for retainage? Uh, sometimes you, the contractor may run two separate reports to provide us with the full picture. Uh, and then, then looking at payables, what's the spread between accounts receivable and accounts payable? Is there a significant shortfall on what's to be collected versus paid out? So those are a 
few of the items with respect to the accounts payables. Okay. Um, so what what are some of other liabilities that you gotta gotta look out for? The kind of gotcha ones that'll pop up and and suck money off the job real quick. You know, if you're not paying attention. Tell us about some of those. We're we got about five minutes left or so, so let's let's pick out some of these and 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 talk about maybe payroll taxes, IRS, that kind of stuff. Sure. Un unquestionably, uh, one of the biggest questions when we go in uh, any books and records is accounts payable. It's it's the number one liability. Um, but there are a bunch of others, and, and I just want to take a step back for a second so that so the listeners understand where we're going. Uh, in a step-by-step -step process. The, the first step was to figure out how much cash was available from a certain cutoff point. And, and it really doesn't matter what, what, what date that cutoff point is as of it. We have to be able to get documents across the board as of that cutoff date, and then we can work from there. So we figure out how much cash is left to be uh, collected going forward. We deduct our cost to complete, hopefully vetted by our construction consultants. Hopefully there's some cash still left over after we do that. Whatever's left over, we take accounts payable. We, that has to be paid. Hopefully there's still a little, little bit of cash left after that. It's that cash that's left after that that now has to address these other liabilities. So what are they? Well, one, one is bank debt. Uh, typically not an issue for the surety in that it's not a bonded obligation, but typically an issue for the surety in that you've got a competing creditor and, and someone we have to be concerned about who could take uh, certain collateral. Uh, Credit card debt, is there credit card debt out? Again, not that it's a bonded obligation, but it's certainly an obligation that, uh, of the company that needs to be considered. And I should say, when we do our books and records, um, our analysis is done on a company-wide uh, perspective, job by job, bonded and non-bonded. In fact, if there's more than one bonding company, we break it out by bonding company. Ultimately, it's not good enough if the bonded jobs are profitable in and of themselves. If there's, say, one, one non-bonded job that has... A uh, large loss on it. If it will take the company down, the company needs to complete the bonded work. So we've got to look at not only the bonded work but the non-bonded work, and that can sometimes lead into a, a dispute with the with the contractor as to why we're looking at stuff that's outside of the the scope of the bonded uh, projects. But looking at other liabilities again, um, as we move forward here, payroll is another significant uh, issue. Uh, clearly, if payroll is not being paid, we'll know about that pretty quickly. Uh, we'll have uh, contractors, their employees in, our, in the office screaming and yelling that they haven't been paid. That we don't worry about as much. Uh, the problem is the payroll taxes, as you pointed out, Mike. Uh, if the payroll taxes aren't paid, generally speaking, the IRS isn't knocking on your door uh, in 7 or, or, or 14 days or 21 days. Uh, it's going to take a while for them to find you, but when they do find you, it's really expensive money. I call it a really expensive loan because of when you tack on the penalties and interest, it can be a lot. Um, and you've got to be careful because that can be an issue down the road with, with a, a surety and bond exposure. Uh, another area is overhead that was mentioned. We need to consider if we're going to run these jobs out to a certain point in time, what's the overhead? What's the monthly burn internally? Uh, do we have to reduce overhead? is overheaded at a reasonable level. Do people have to take a reduction in, in uh, compensation going forward? Pete, Pete let, me, let me interrupt on payroll. Are you able to, are you able to determine in your, in, in your short investigation time whether they're paying the prevailing wages properly? Because that, if they're not doing that, that's another kind of thing that, that hides in the background and then pops up later when the DOL comes in and says, oh, we need you know, $100,000 off this job. 
we try to look at that issue also. Uh, that is a very, very big I gotcha on the back end. You think your job's done, and then you find out maybe years later that it's not done from a, a shorty perspective. But we do try to look at pay rates to make sure they tie into prevailing wage or Davis-Bacon, you know, whatever might be applicable. Right. Uh, other issues that we, we look at quickly here are, are bond claims. How do our bond claims compare to our payables? Uh, if we've got a $100 bond claim but only $90 booked in payables for that claimant, what we'll typically do to be, uh, from a conservative nature of accounting, we'll post the additional $10 in my example as, a, as a bond claims in excess of payables. Not that it's accurate, but just to give uh, the surety an idea of its potential maximum exposure. Uh, we also consider things like uh, liquidated damages. Is there an LD provision? What, what's the exposure there? And we get it sometimes. We hear, oh, it's not going to be charged. Don't worry about it. We need to book that because we're not sure. We, don't, we can't just take the word of the principal from that perspective. Um, finally, things that we do uh, also consider, but we, very rarely do we book affirmative claims. Uh, we're going to make this much money, but after the job's done, we're going to make a lot more because we have this affirmative claim that's going to yield so much money, it'll make everything just right. I've heard that at a lot of times, and very rarely does that ever come to um, come to fruition. Um, and one of the things that we do as a, an accounting firm that may or may not be the same across the board, we typically report numbers to our clients uh, without any contingency in them. So we don't beef up our number by a 10 or 20 percent factor just because. We give the raw numbers to our client, explain the situation, and then at that point we just discuss collectively whether a contingency might be appropriate. Right. Yeah, that's good. It's good to do it that way because then everybody's focusing on, on what it should be as opposed to having it baked in and you're not really sure what it was or how it got there. Okay, well, I think we're about out of time. Uh, and I want to thank you, uh, Peter and John, uh, for, for joining us today and all your insights on this topic. Uh, before I open up the line for any questions, though, uh, I wanted to let everyone know that um, the next uh, surety today will be Monday, April 8th at uh, 12.30, and I'm going to be joined by my partner, Jason Potter. We're going to talk about uh, the surety case law update review. So uh, we'll be talking about, um, you know, recent cases. I think we're going to go back to, like, June or, or May of last year and and then pull out some relevant cases. Upcoming surety events, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association lunch meeting will be March 20th. Uh, Mr. Scott St. Marie will be speaking on construction mediation and arbitration. And the uh, Surety Claims Conference, uh, the Southern Surety Claims Conference, rather, uh, will be held on April 3rd through the 5th in New Orleans. I'm going to be going to that. Hope to see people there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, I look forward to speaking with everybody again next month. Let me uh, open up the line here. Okay, so do we have any questions for uh, Peter or John? Hi, I'm Warren. This is Jerry Underwood from American Southern. Hi, Jerry. My question is, is how much help or how much interference do you get from the account's ordinary standard CPA who's prepared the financial statements? Um, typically, it depends on the level of, uh, of the principal as far as their, their, their accounting group. If their accounting group is very small, we'll have more input from the outside CPA, say like a, a bookkeeper is maintaining the books and records. It's, it's very uh, common that we'll use we'll rely on the outside CPA to help us for some of the accounting information we're requesting. With a larger books and records, uh, say a contractor has a lot of, of projects ongoing, they have a, a fairly sophisticated internal accounting department, 
probably not as much uh, use with the outside CPA. We'll look at the, we'll rely upon the internal accounting department of the principal. So you don't get the resistance that says, I have my own CPA, why do I need you guys? Uh, I don't get that argument as much. Um, they, I think the surety at some point explains, look, we have a right under the indemnity agreement to do this books and records. We need our own boys and girls to do it. Uh, we appreciate you have a qualified CPA that you hire outside, but this is not this is not an audit review or compilation. This is not what you what your guy does every year and gives to us once a year. It's some it's a different type of analysis. We need our own guys to go in and, and take a look at it. Right. Is, is there a size limitation? I mean, if somebody doesn't do ten million a year, is it is it too hard to do the small ones because their records and so forth aren't sophisticated enough for your process? Uh, no, uh, I in our office here we we have clients that range from uh, uh, shorties that, that kind of uh, work in the in the smaller uh, bond space to the to the largest of, of shorties in, in the country. Uh, we do books and records at every level. Um, one of the things that we are very cognizant here at MDD is, is cost. When you're doing a books and records of a very small contractor, you need to be in and out quickly to keep the cost down. And uh, with that, we really try to promote. And, and ask for electronic uh, back and forth of, of, of documents, uh, as opposed to us going to a contractor's office to keep those keep those costs down. Okay, thanks, gentlemen. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. Any other questions? Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, and thanks, Peter and John, again. Everybody, take care. Bye, bye. Thank you, Mike. Thank Have a good day. Thank bye. You. Take care. Thank thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Uh,